So Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Getting ready for the sermon back there. <laughs> As I told you last week, and it's kind of the, the theme of our study in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is writing a message of hope and fulfillment for those who are longing for God. This is not an accident. This is a deliberate uh, calculation on Luke's part to relate the message of the Gospel of Christ to the Old Testament promises and to call to our attention how they are fulfilled. Luke's two-volume story, the Gospel and the book of Acts, um, always are pointing back to the fulfillment of God's promises. And in that, there is an underlining of God's faithfulness. And I think that's a message that we want to not miss as we go through the Gospel of Luke. There's a tendency for us to wonder sometimes, you know, where is God? <laughs> what's happening in my life? What's happening in our country? What's, it, what's going on in the church? Where's God? And uh, has He forgotten us? Is He not keeping His Word? And Luke reminds us throughout his message of the faithfulness of God. Not only does he do this with respect to the nation of Israel and how God is faithful to keep His promises to Israel, but he is showing how individuals in the providence of God fit into that purpose so that you and I also play a role as he brings our attention first to one and then another ordinary person for all intents and purposes that factor into God's eternal purposes. And as I come to the conclusion of this morning's message, I want to kind of tune you on the outset to ask the question, am I available to God? Am I submitted to Him, surrendered in such a way that in following His purposes for my life, I can find my place in that eternal plan. Because none of us are insignificant. And that, I think, even comes out in this morning's message. So with that backdrop, I'd like you to follow with me as I read from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Now, someone asked me last week, what version are you reading from? And I get asked that periodically, and, and, and I have to confess, I, I know I confuse you if you're following, and I don't mean to do that. Sometimes I read from New American Standard, sometimes I read from New International Version, sometimes I read from the English Standard Version, sometimes I read from any one of those and add on the Paul Martin translation uh, in the midst of it, which doesn't sound like any of them, and, and so I know that's uh, confusing. I am going to declare myself this morning. I am going to preach from Luke's Gospel from the New American Standard Version 1995 edition. 
and I will read it faithfully as it is written. And uh, after that, uh, no holds are barred. I can uh, explain and, and expound in other directions. But I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And if you're following in some other version, um, just stay with us. It'll work. And if you want to read it in the same version in the, the uh, chairs, there are those reddish colored books. Those happen to be Bibles in the New American Standard Translation. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. and She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Luke begins his historical narrative like a really good story. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias. You automatically know that he's about to to weave a story out of the circumstances and events of that time, and that he's going to tell us how it came about 
that Jesus Christ appeared on the scene. He's laying the foundation for that. And another thing that I notice as I look at this passage of Scripture is that the words that the angel spoke to Zacharias are the first words from God to the nation in 400 years. Now, that is an amazing time frame. Four centuries have passed since Malachi uttered his prophecies, and there has been no official word from God during that length of time. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here just a little bit and uh, say something extra biblical. It's not found anywhere in the Scripture, and I can't prove it, so if you ask me to prove it, I can't do it. But uh, here's my assumption. I think along the way, God has always had people that have had relationship with Him. And uh, I think probably along the way, there have been people who had personal connection with God. I'm so glad that He can lead us in choices of career and, you know, development and and, uh, other kinds of things where we need wisdom and guidance and that those who are faithful can receive the guidance of the Lord in their lives. But that's vastly different from God's Word to the nation. The official proclamation that breaks the silence of God to a whole people. And it's interesting to me that the first words that God speaks through the angel Gabriel to break the silence of 400 years is, Do not be afraid. Fear not. Now, admittedly, there is a contextual presence Zacharias is in the temple. He is offering incense. He was uh, drawn to that position by lots that were cast, and he, his name fell out in the lots. And by the way, I have a question on the back of your study guide. You can uh, pursue that at some other time this week about the lot and what Proverbs has to say about it, but suffice it to say that there are no accidents with God. Zacharias is chosen, he's in the temple, he's about to offer the incense, and all of a sudden he looks up and to his left, on the right of the altar, is an angel. And I must admit that almost every time an angel appears, the first words that he utters are, do not be afraid. (laughs) Because the natural result of any human being who sees an angelic being is fear. Um, people are startled by that. I don't know if it's because of the... I haven't seen an angel, so I can't give you a first-hand testimony. I don't know if it's because of their their powerful appearance. I don't know if it's because of flaming swords. I I don't know what it is about them that uh, arrests your attention, but it's clearly obvious that, first of all, there's someone here that's not supposed to be here, and they don't look exactly human, and Zacharias is afraid. And that clearly is the context of his first words. Do not be afraid. But isn't it interesting that that's what Gabriel says to a man who is having a natural response? If fear is the natural response to that, then it's like, okay, so he's calming him down a little bit. But I think that there's perhaps more going on, if you'll indulge me a little bit. That the Scripture says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, 
And when we are afraid, it's because, at least for the moment, we have lost sight of the fact that God is on the throne. That God is in control. That God is always with us. That our lives and our times are in His hands. And that even in this unfolding event in the life of the nation of Israel... God has never left them without remedy. And friends, you and I have nothing to be afraid of as followers of God in Jesus Christ. God has given us the confidence that He is with us at all times. To have fear implies a lack of faith. Now, I know it's natural for the adrenaline to flow. I've had things go bump in the night and uh, get the goosebumps and the palpitations and the racing heartbeat and all of those kinds of things. And then usually my next response is to focus on the Lord and to uh, bring things into perspective and then do whatever it is that I need to do. But, But the message of God to Zacharias and the message that breaks the silence of 400 years is don't be afraid. And then Gabriel begins to explain the announcement that he has been sent to make that Zacharias and Elizabeth are going to have a child. They're going to call him John. And he is going to fulfill certain very specific promises that were last made by Malachi. If you'd like to turn back, perhaps... Um, to Malachi in the Old Testament. Uh, You may recall reading that even from last week. But at the end of Malachi chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And Gabriel says to Zacharias, you're going to have a child, you're going to name him John, and he is going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And there are two things that he is going to do. He is going to proclaim a message that turns the hearts of the people back the fathers to their children, the children to their fathers, that restores righteousness and moral purity in the land. He's going to bring revival. This tells us something about the condition and nature of Israel at the time. 400 years have passed. They haven't heard from God. Um, They're living under Roman uh, rule and, and suffrage. They're struggling in that a situation. They're unhappy with the economics. They're unhappy with the politics. They're looking for relief. But they're not really looking and hungering for God, for God's own sake. May I suggest to you that that's kind of the nature of the church and the nation in our country today and in the West. We are in a time of spiritual lethargy. 
We are in a time of spiritual coldness. We are longing for economic relief. We're longing for political relief. We want our lives to be better. But I'm not so sure how passionate we are about God's purposes being fulfilled. I would suspect that if you would stand on the street corner and interview most people who are Christians or even non-Christians and ask them what is the whole point of Christianity, that the response of most people would be, so I can have a better life. I don't know that the passion of the church today is the glory of God. And it's certainly not the longing of our nation. We have strayed far. That is exactly where the nation of Israel was in the time of John the Baptist. And God said among the things that John the Baptist will do is he will bring revival. As coming in the spirit of Elijah and turn the hearts of the people around. And he came preaching that message and offering a baptism of repentance. That people would turn from their self-centered ways and turn back to God. The other thing that he was said he would do is prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. There were those people in Israel who were longing for the coming of Messiah. That was their passionate desire. They wanted Him to come. Maybe they didn't all understand the depths of that, but they were longing for the purposes of God and the promises of God to be fulfilled. And I want to also say to us today that those who have a handle on God's purposes and plan we need to have and ought to have that longing again for the return of Jesus Christ. Because when He comes, His kingdom is manifest. When He comes, His glory is made known. When He comes, He reigns in righteousness. He fixes this depraved planet. He turns things upside down and restores those things that are lost and hopeless. And among the yearning of our heart should be this desire for the return of Jesus Christ. And God says to Zacharias through the angel Gabriel, your son John is going to proclaim the coming of the Lord. And he's going to prepare the way. And he's going to be anointed with the Spirit from his birth. It is interesting to me that although his vow is going to be the vow of a Nazarite, He's not going to drink any um, wine or strong liquor. That it's interesting that that parallels Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And God says, John the Baptist is going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. That doesn't necessarily mean indwelt. There's a whole theology there that you've heard me preach on before and I don't have time to go into this morning, but... The point is that he is going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit much as alcohol takes over and brings you under its influence and its control. John is going to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he's going to proclaim this message 
that the one coming after him will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fill you with power from on high and bring transformation to the people of God. So this announcement marks the end of the years of waiting and yearning and longing and heralds the coming of Jesus Christ that is going to change the course of history, not only in Israel, but for all the world. That's the basic message of this passage. And it speaks to us of the historical preparation for the birth of Jesus Christ. But when we read the Scriptures, one of the things we ought always to be attentive to is what is the application of this passage to me? What does God want to say to me? And I'm not talking about the subjective kind of application. You know, sometimes we read the Scripture and we're seeking guidance about something and we read a verse and God speaks to us from the verse, kind of an answer to our prayer. But if you took that to a hermeneutics class, they would uh, make fun of you because it it is not contextually interpreted or accurate in any sense of the word. Um, and God can do that. I'm, I'm not going to uh, hold him to the rules of grammar and hermeneutics at, in your personal uh, interaction with him. But you better test that in the rest of Scripture. But what I'm asking this morning is, what are the principles that we can lift out of this passage that are biblically sound and true, that apply to everyone in all times, that we can learn from this passage that will speak to us in our situation today. I suggest to you that there are three of them. And a few weeks ago, I brought a message on the problem of pain and suffering and when God doesn't seem to answer prayer in the way that we expect Him to. I want to revisit that. According to Deuteronomy 7.14, if you uh, would like to turn there... um, You're welcome. If not, uh, I'm going to uh, read it from the passage I've already marked. Saves me from flipping around looking it up. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I want you to hear the context of this passage in Deuteronomy. And notice to whom Moses speaks as he delivers the message. You are a holy people. Verse 7, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay them to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you to do today. 
Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you His covenant and His loving kindness, which He swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock, and the land which He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. And He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but He will lay them on those who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, uh, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. There is a promise here in Deuteronomy that, that if the nation of Israel loves and serves the Lord none of them will be barren. In fact, none of the sicknesses that have come upon all of Egypt will come upon the people of Israel. There's a dilemma. Elizabeth is barren. She has no child. And the blight of barrenness in that day was quite terrible. Because in that society and in that culture and where the economy was largely based on growing crops and that sort of thing, if a woman couldn't have children, she just wasn't any good. What good's a wife that can't have babies? There's no prosperity in the family. There's no future. There's no one to carry on the name. There's no one to help in the fields. And furthermore, because of this promise in Deuteronomy, the assumption was that she or her husband had in some way sinned. Because doesn't it say if you keep the law and love the Lord and follow Him that you won't be barren? So why are you barren? You must not be following God. Now, it's obvious that Zacharias was not sinning in any obvious way because he was still operating as a priest and ministering the incense and following through with the ironic line. And so, there's this question mark. I rather suspect that this was a discussion that Zacharias and Elizabeth had way into the night on many occasions. That they wondered why they were not being blessed. They were doing everything they knew to follow God. They knew their own lives. They knew they were serving the Lord the best they knew how. They knew they loved the Lord. They were praying for a child. I... The, the word petition occurs in the singular in this passage, but that means the subject, not the number of prayers. I'm quite sure that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed again and again and again. That's the nature, uh, that's our nature. Lord, give us a child. Lord, give us a child. Lord, what's wrong? 
Lord, we love you. You know we love you. Meanwhile, the neighbors are talking. Elizabeth, what a worthless wife. She is a reproach among the men. Zacharias, you really married a dud. She's no good. And what secret sin are you hiding? Because you've got to be sinning if you're not having children. But listen to the divine commentary. This is God's statement about Zacharias and Elizabeth. (laughs) They were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. The divine commentary upon Zacharias and Elizabeth was they were godly people. But there was no response to their prayers and they had no child. How do we explain this? And I want to say to you, And this is a hard pill to swallow. I realize it is. But listen very carefully because this is really important. The promise that God made was to the nation. Not to individuals. You've got to look at the context. God made a promise to the nation. If you will walk before me. Keep my commandments, follow me, and love me, and serve me, then I will put upon you none of these diseases. I will bless your crops, and I will bless your wombs, and you will have children, and you will be prosperous. But if you turn aside from me, all bets are off. I am not going to presume this morning to tell you that events that have happened in our nation in the last 10 or 15 years have necessarily been the judgment of God. Some radio preachers of some note have gone public and said that Katrina was God's judgment in New Orleans and the World Trade Centers was God's judgment on the economy of our nation. and I I don't know that I can say that. Whether it was or whether it wasn't. What I do know is, as a people, as a country, we do not deserve God's blessing. We are far from Him as a people. We're in trouble. We're morally in trouble. We're spiritually in trouble. And as a church, if you ask the average Christian, as I said before, if you ask the average Christian, what's the point of being a Christian? The average answer you're going to get is, so my life will be better. And what they mean by that is in terms of economics and health and their wish list. 
I submit to you this morning that the driving passion of the Church of Jesus Christ today in this country is not a driving passion for the glory of God and the coming of His kingdom. We are in a state where we need revival. And I want to further say that when the judgment of God does come, and this is true through history, do you suppose that there are godly people who love the Lord and serve Him and follow Him who die in the disasters, who lose everything they have, whose lives are upended, who get the sicknesses and fall by the diseases? What's the deal? Why do the righteous suffer? And, and here's the difficult pill. When the nation or the church has gone far away from God and the blessings of God are being withheld, even the righteous suffer the consequences. And part of the reason is that those who have a hunger and a thirst for God will cry out, there's something wrong. Something is amiss. Oh God, visit us again by your Spirit and send revival. Turn us again to holiness. Bring us back to a love for You and exalt Your name among us. When the people in general have turned away from God, the righteous will suffer. That's tough, but it's real. And we need to pray with a much bigger picture than what's going on in just my life. We need to see the, 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 the grander scheme and pray for the outpouring of God's Spirit. Well, I'm already out of time, and I have two more points. And I'm going to try to cover them very quickly. Look these scriptures up at home in Revelation but it's interesting that in Revelation, under the altar, there is a bowl that contains all the prayers of God's people. Did you know, my friends, that God never forgets one of your prayers? Never forgets one. They're always there. They are before Him rising like incense to His nostrils, as it were as he sits on the throne. And in his perfect timing, he has lost none of them and will fulfill the longings of our heart. Don't you know when the angel appeared to Zacharias and said, Zacharias, God has heard your petition, that Zacharias knew exactly what God was talking about. It's the one thing I've longed for my whole life. That we would have a baby. 
There's only one problem. Biology has run its course. Elizabeth is beyond childbearing years. Zacharias is an old man by his own admission. How can this be? And Zacharias says to the angel, How can I know this is going to be true? You know, one of the things that immediately came to my mind is, why did Zacharias get dinged for that? I mean, you know, he told him, you're not going to say a word until this baby's born because you didn't believe me. Well, wasn't that kind of natural? I mean, these are old people. And they're just getting news that they're going to have a baby. And it's like way late in the game. I'm not sure if... I got that news today. I'd be jumping up and down with joy. I, you know, I'd be kind of scratching my head and saying, oh my goodness. And he says, how can I believe this? And the angel says, ah, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to talk until this baby's born. And you say, why? Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel? You should know these things. Zacharias was a teacher of the Word. He should know these things. He had the benefit of Abraham's story and Sarah. He had the benefit of Hannah. He knew how those stories turned out. He knew that Sarah was just like his wife. And God's Word to her was, you know, (laughs) I know I didn't laugh, you know, it's like, I am the Lord. There's nothing too hard for me. Not biology, not your body, not your age. I can do anything I choose to do. And Zacharias should have known. Am I being too harsh? I don't think so, because that's what Gabriel said. You should have known. Because you didn't believe me. Here's Gabriel standing saying, I've heard your prayer and you're going to have a child. And Zacharias, listen, part of spiritual maturity is coming to know the ways and character of God. And as we grow in the knowledge and character of God, His faithfulness, our God is a covenant-keeping God, His faithfulness. His power, His mighty grace and ability should be woven into the fabric of our life. Zacharias should have got it. But don't forget in the midst of that, that God did not lose track of His prayer or Elizabeth's prayer. And in due season, God will meet us. Finally, the faithful have a role in the great plan of God. Let me just close with these words from Ephesians. For we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God Himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, it is not trivial or trite to say God has a plan for your life. He does have a plan. He has created a whole sequence of works for your life that fit into His eternal purposes. And not one of you here this morning are insignificant. 
Your life matters. God has a purpose for you. And if you are submitted and surrendered to Him and willing to follow Him, He will lead you in those plans that He has detailed for your life in such a way that you will fulfill His purposes. You may feel like you're insignificant and you're just a homemaker or a clerk or a mechanic or an engineer or whatever it is that you do. And, and, and my life is just everyday, ordinary. And I believe it was a shoe salesman that led D.L. Moody to Christ. You don't know. You don't know. But if you will be open to God's work in your life and walk in the path that He has ordained, your life will make a difference. And when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ and look back, it will all come together for you. That you had a role to play in God's eternal purposes. And your life matters. Don't ever give up on that. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Encourage us, strengthen us. May we apply it to our lives in faith and trust. You are a faithful God who keeps covenant with your people. In Jesus' name, amen.